One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In the year leading up to the 2020 election, we're counting down the biggest scandals in American political history. This is number 34, The Blackmail of Lester Hunt. The Senate offices sat quiet on the morning of June 19, 1954. It was a Saturday, after all, and the warm sunshine invited D.C. residents outside to enjoy the weather. But not everyone would venture into the weekend with such carefree plans. Such was the case for Detective Jack Frost. No, not that Jack Frost. This Virginia investigator was a less jovial figure. That morning, anyway. He'd been summoned up to the Senate offices by Capitol Security. Why, they wouldn't say. Not over the phone. But clearly, something had gone wrong. Frost's suspicions were confirmed when he arrived on the third floor of the building to see a gathering of aides murmuring in hushed tones. They briefed him on the situation. Frost was shaken, but there wasn't time to waste. He launched into action. They needed an empty florist van immediately. An odd demand, perhaps, but calling an ambulance would draw too much attention. An emergency vehicle at the congressional offices, on a weekend no less, would send reporters into a frenzy. And Frost needed to buy the staffers time before the news vans arrived. They had to figure out how to tell the Wyoming senator's family why a gunshot rang out in his office that morning. Welcome to Political Scandals, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Political Scandals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Political Scandals in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Washington, D.C., the 1950s. It's nearly impossible to hear these words and not immediately associate them with McCarthyism. McCarthyism takes its name from Joseph McCarthy. 
the Wisconsin senator known to this day for perpetuating a Red Scare in the 1950s. He effectively convinced the U.S. that communism was slipping into every crack of American life and coming for the country's democratic ideals. But the Red Scare wasn't the only mania brewing at the time. There was another scare, similarly tied to communism, but also linked to contemporary misconceptions about homosexuality, which until the 1970s was categorized by the American Psychiatric Association as a psychological illness. Conservative fear-mongers believed the LGBTQ community was extra-vulnerable to being duped by the United States' communist enemies. They could, after all, be blackmailed for their sexuality. No matter that blackmail is the fault of the blackmailer, and plenty of heterosexual government employees had skeletons in their closets, too, LGBTQ was suddenly equated with communism, and the paranoia had violent consequences. The Lavender Scare, as it was dubbed, lasted from the late 1940s into the 1960s. It led to thousands of investigations into the sexuality of government employees. Such inquiries aimed to dismiss LGBTQ civil servants from their jobs. But the Lavender Scare didn't stop there. According to the National LGBTQ Chamber of Commerce, not only were LGBT federal employees fired, but many others were also simply fired for guilt of association in knowing someone who was LGBT. It was a grim time. But even pervasive movements like the Lavender Scare don't simply emerge out of thin air. They have their leaders, the ones who turn fear into paranoid retributive action. In the case of the Lavender Scare, that leader was New Hampshire Senator Stiles Bridges. He was a formidable leader. Back in 1934, at age 37, he'd become the youngest governor in the United States at the time. In 1936, he was elected to the New Hampshire Senate seat that he would hold for nearly a quarter of a century. Eventually, his long congressional tenure saw him rise to the rank of president pro tempore, the second most important officer and in charge of the Senate when the vice president is away. By the early 1950s, according to biographer Roger McDaniel, Bridges was considered the most important man in the United States Senate and one of the five or six most powerful men in the world. The weight he threw behind the Lavender Scare cause was tremendous. But like most powerful men, Bridges didn't fight his battles alone. He had allies everywhere. Even the Eisenhower White House was complicit. In 1953, President Eisenhower signed an executive order which listed sexual perversion as grounds for firing current employees. Perversion here was a euphemism for anyone who wasn't heterosexual. The order encouraged more agencies to spring up and police the perceived threat. The D.C. Metro Police even created a vice unit tasked with surveying the city's social scene, from businesses to parks. A detective named Roy Blick would become Washington's one-man watchdog. These Lavender Scare policies contributed to the McCarthyistic climate of 1950s D.C., a climate of fear, persecution, and enemies that seemed impossible to catch up with because they didn't exist. 
But what business did congressional fearmongers and undercover cops have with a humble dentist from Wyoming? Well, that dentist was Lester Hunt, who, in addition to being a dentist, was a Democratic senator holding a highly coveted seat. In 1953, the Senate was split. Forty-eight Democratic senators held the narrowest of majorities over their 47 Republican colleagues. If one Democrat were to resign, though, the balance of power would flip. Out of the 48 Democrats, Lester Hunt was particularly interesting to Republicans. His term was about to end in 1954, and if Hunt gave up his seat, most people on the Hill speculated that he'd be replaced by current Wyoming Governor C.J. Rogers. Who was, you guessed it, a Republican. But of course, there was little reason for Hunt to give up his seat. He had solid support in his home state, And by the political standards of the 50s, he was an honorable man with an admirable backstory. After growing up in small-town Illinois, Hunt paid his way through dental school by working the railroads. When World War I broke out, he dutifully enlisted to serve. And in 1920, when the war wound down, he and his new wife, Nathel, moved back to Wyoming and dedicated themselves to their community. Hunt's 1932 decision to run for the state legislature was par for the course. It didn't matter that he had barely any experience in politics. It just mattered that people trusted him. Wyoming politics were still very much the Wild West. There wasn't the same insistence on political pedigree as back east. And in the midst of the Great Depression, a local Democratic veteran was someone Wyoming could throw its weight behind. He understood the plight of the average family. Hunt was elected as a representative to the Wyoming state legislature in 1933. In 1948, he ran for the United States Senate and won. Lester Hunt, the small-town dentist, had made it to Washington, all with his unimpeachable reputation intact. Unfortunately, he joined the town just as the paranoia of the Red and Lavender Scares was nearing its boiling point. And in that age, the Republicans, and particularly paranoid leaders like Stiles Bridges, knew that enough digging would unearth cracks in any man's reputation. As Hunt's freshman term wound down in 1953, Bridges became increasingly determined to find that crack. It was worth a bit of effort, considering that if he took Hunt down, he might just win his party a majority in the Senate. Up next, Senator Bridges resorts to dirty tactics in his fight for Lester Hunt's Senate seat. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. 
This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Now, back to the story. In the 1950s, the United States was fighting an onslaught of paranoia. The American public lingered in perpetual anxiety, wondering what the next menace would be. Republican Senator Joe McCarthy stepped in to tell the country that public enemy number one was communism. And number two was the LGBTQ community. For these fear-mongers, anyone that deviated from the narrow ideal of heterosexual conservatism should be subject to surveillance. It was a good climate for taking down civil servants with whispers of disgrace. Unfortunately for Wyoming Senator Lester Hunt, who in 1953 was nearing the end of his first term in Congress. Senator Stiles Bridges was determined to take Hunt's seat for the GOP through whatever means necessary. His first approach was to pointedly attack Lester Hunt's politics, claiming he was weak on communism. According to biographer Roger McDaniel, the New Hampshire senator openly criticized Hunt for taking a position he felt was too lenient on the employment of homosexuals and others who Bridges thought were security risks in the federal government. But verbal accusations would only do so much. Bridges needed something bigger. In the summertime of 1953, he'd get his ammunition. Lester Hunt's son, also named Lester, so nicknamed Buddy, was briefly visiting Washington, D.C. A rigorous learner, Buddy had graduated from Swarthmore College in June of 1949. He was inspired by the college's commitment to social justice. After graduation, Buddy was eager to take what he'd learned and apply it to a life in theology. Specifically, he enrolled at the Episcopal Theological School in Massachusetts. He planned to continue his coursework and spend his summers teaching abroad in Havana. But before heading out for Cuba, Buddy swung by to visit his parents in Washington. And for one reason or another, late one June evening, the 24-year-old was walking through D.C.'s Lafayette Park. It was no ordinary patch of grass. Lafayette Park had a reputation for hosting all kinds of activities, protests, dates, and social gatherings including those of Washington's gay community. However, the rise of the Lavender Scare had changed the atmosphere of D.C.'s popular hangout spot. By 1953, Lafayette Park was less a place of fun than somewhere where members of the LGBTQ community might be trapped by vicious gang members or cops. And a trap was precisely what waited for Buddy Hunt that summer night. As Buddy passed through the park, he walked by an undercover D.C. Metro police officer. This officer, John Costanzo, allegedly tried to catch Hunt's eye. In his court testimony, Buddy said, Costanzo was swaggering, trying to attract my attention. They made eye contact, and the two were prepared to go to Buddy's place when Costanzo flashed his badge. Buddy Hunt was arrested 
then escorted to the police's morals division to have his mugshot and fingerprints taken. Though he could have called Senator Hunt and his mother, Nathel, Buddy opted to spend the night in jail. He knew that thanks to a pervasive culture of fear and shame, the charges would embarrass the family and potentially impact his father's career. The next morning, Buddy was officially charged with soliciting for a lewd and immoral purpose. This was all in keeping with the practices of the time. What happened next was not. The head of the D.C. Metro Vice Squad, Roy Blick, sent word to Senator Lester Hunt's office that Buddy was in trouble. Hunt undoubtedly knew Blick's name and the kinds of cases he worked. He also knew the potentially damaging implications of the case in the midst of the Lavender Scare. So he didn't go to the jailhouse himself. Instead, he sent a proxy, his congressional aide, Mike Manitos. Manitos would meet with Blick and get a litmus on the situation. Upon learning the charges, Manitos apparently explained that Buddy had been receiving psychiatric treatment and wasn't in his normal state of mind. This was untrue, but he likely figured it was the best argument to get the charges dismissed. Blick's alleged reply was as surprising as his initial call to Senator Hunt. The detective said he tried to get the case thrown out. This, coming from a man who boasted about raiding Lafayette Park, spoke volumes. Perhaps Lester Hunt's sterling reputation in Washington was even more powerful than the rampant aggression of McCarthyism and the Lavender Scare. The fact that the charges were subsequently withdrawn seemed to confirm this. After a few days, prosecutors decided not to pursue further action, citing the fact that it was Buddy's first offense. This may very well have been the end of the story, had it not been for one crass comment made to Senator Bridges. According to McDaniel, in the days following Buddy's arrest, Senator Bridges was told that the Lester C. Hunt, who had been charged with soliciting sex from an undercover officer, was his fellow senator. Clearly, the congressional aide who gave Bridges this information had confused Senator Hunt with his son. But the remark was all it took to spur Bridges to investigate. He, along with his colleague, Senator Herman Welker of Idaho, immediately paid a visit to Roy Blick. Who explained that it was Buddy, not Lester Sr., who had been picked up. Bridges and Welker were likely disappointed, but not without hope. It wasn't quite as damaging for a senator to have a gay family member as it was for him to be gay himself. But it was certainly still an embarrassment. The real problem came with Detective Blick's second piece of information. The law wasn't moving forward with charges. That would not do. Whispers about a gay son were all well and good. But it was a trial against Hunt's son that would really make their colleague look bad. The senators were not going to let this opportunity go. Senator Welker contacted Blick multiple more times that day. Finally, that night, Welker demanded that Blick come meet him in person. There, Welker accused him of taking a $2,000 bribe to drop Buddy's charges. Blick was taken aback. He defended his work. Clearly, the senator was trying to frame him. Blick refused to admit any wrongdoing and promptly left. But Bridges and Welker would not be deterred. They'd simply have to try another tactic. 
And luckily, Bridges had connections in the D.C. Metro Police. Detective Blick found himself taken off Buddy's case. In the meantime, Senators Bridges and Welker launched another line of attack. This one directly at Senator Hunt. They'd used the threat of a trial to try and coerce him out of his seat. Much quicker than actually waiting for fallout from the trial, and easier for everyone. Like all men of the Cold War, Bridges and Welker loved a good proxy. They sent a third party to deliver their ultimatum. Glenn Red Jacoby, the University of Wyoming Director of Athletics. Hunt had once helped Jacoby raise funding for UW's athletic program. That relationship made him a promising emissary, and his job was simple. All he had to do was tell Hunt that he best give up his Senate seat or Buddy would be prosecuted and the whole country would hear about it. But Jacoby's conscience tugged at him, and he stalled. He didn't want to have such a responsibility dumped in his lap. Instead, he asked Joe O'Mahony, a former Wyoming senator, to tell Hunt. O'Mahony, he suspected, would have the gumption to follow through. Jacoby was right. O'Mahony delivered the message. Senator Hunt immediately understood the stakes of Bridges' threat. A trial would be a huge blow, not just to Buddy's reputation, but to his whole family. Dinner invitations would be lost in the mail. Golf buddies would forget to mention they were playing at a different course. Charitable committees would fail to invite his wife to their teas and luncheons. And even if he did decide to drag his family through that shame, he might still lose the support of his constituents in the fallout and end up without a career. But Lester Hunt had come from nothing, worked his way up, fought in a world war. If he allowed himself to be strong-armed, what would that say about the reputation he'd built, about his values? According to journalist Drew Pearson, Hunt finally decided he would not permit himself to be blackmailed out of office. The ball was back in Bridges' court, but he'd need to roll up his sleeves in order to make the charges against Buddy Hunt reappear. But Bridges wasn't one to turn up his nose at hard work or bat an eye at twisting a few arms for his cause. According to Pearson, he and his ally, Senator Joe Welker, once more sought out their main man, Detective Roy Blick. And allegedly, this time, it wasn't a matter of verbal abuse. Blick was given a copy of his unsigned letter of resignation and told that the prosecution of Buddy Hunt should be forthcoming. Or else. On June 30th, another warrant for Buddy's arrest on the same moral charges was issued, despite the fact that Buddy was now in Cuba for his Episcopal coursework. The summons was adamant that he return to Washington. His trial date was set for October 1953. Buddy's lawyer, under Senator Hunt's watchful eye, began to prepare the defense. He would argue that Buddy was an innocent victim of entrapment. First, that meant proving that Costanzo had been trying to lure in Buddy. This wouldn't be hard to do, considering that it was a central part of Costanzo's job. However, the second portion of entrapment takes into account the defendant's behavior. 
Buddy's lawyer had to convince the judge that Buddy hadn't been open to an advance from Costanzo. Though he wasn't publicly out about his sexuality, Buddy's lawyer was inclined to believe his client would have engaged with Costanzo's proposition. And he was worried the judge would think the same. Years later, Buddy himself admitted, I wasn't framed. I guess technically it was entrapment, but I was ready for the trap. The trial ended without much light at the end of the tunnel. Buddy was deemed guilty and given the choice to pay a $100 fine or serve 30 days in jail. He paid the fine. Senator Hunt faced the trial's conclusion with gritted teeth and seriously considered whether it was even worth running for re-election. The arrest and trial hadn't been widely publicized yet, but he knew that was liable to change at any moment. After all, he was no longer a young man. He told the governor of Alaska about his hesitations. He was no longer of the age to reconcile gambling $10,000, $12,000, or maybe $15,000 on the questionable possibility of being reelected. As 1954 wound on, however, it appeared Hunt's worries about re-election were abating. According to McDaniel, he'd even commissioned a poll measuring his support against four possible GOP contenders. The poll told him he would likely be re-elected. Perhaps all his worrying about the political fallout of Buddy's arrest and trial was for naught. But as the election approached, the blackmail began. His opponents threatened to flood Wyoming with leaflets about Buddy's conviction. And the senator's stiff upper lip didn't mean he wasn't affected by the idea of having his son publicly outed and used as a political chess piece. Washington could have guessed as much. Everyone in the city lived in the same culture of fear and persecution. Still, the city was shocked when just two months after announcing his re-election campaign, Lester Hunt made an announcement. He was withdrawing from the race. Back home in Wyoming, Hunt's constituents clamored for answers, too. He'd been so well-positioned to win. And if Hunt wasn't going to run for Senate, what was he going to do? Up next, Senator Hunt makes a shocking choice. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now back to the story. After weathering his son's criminal trial and hinting that he'd seek re-election, Senator Lester Hunt's spring 1954 bombshell didn't make sense. He announced he wouldn't run. But William Harrison, the most formidable candidate running against him, had already dropped out. He had excellent odds of winning. Hunt's own explanation for the announcement did little to satisfy the public. He made the vague claim that he had to end his campaign due to pressing health issues. As the Washington rumor mill started churning, so did whispers that Hunt had been making regular visits to the Bethesda Naval Hospital recently. For what? No one quite knew. As support poured in, 
Hunt assured his constituents and friends that he was okay. He just needed time to mend. His private actions, though, contradicted his words. Little did those close to the senator know he was preparing for something. According to biographer Roger McDaniel, he set about writing a series of letters. One went to Dean Krakel at the University of Wyoming. Hunt asked that the university archive would receive his records as soon as his Senate term concluded the next year. More letters went out to former co-workers and mentors. He thanked his former aide and old dental colleagues for guiding him through his early years. Apparently, he sent letters nearly until the day he died. And that day would come all too soon. On Saturday, June 19, 1954, Hunt slipped out from his home. He told no one of his plans, but simply got behind the wheel and drove to his Senate office alone. It wasn't odd for representatives to be working weekends at the Capitol. Various aides held weekend shifts to support anyone pulling odd hours. When the senator arrived, though, his hands were full. Literally. So full that a young security guard offered to lend him a hand. Hunt handed him a Winchester bolt-action 22 rifle. The guard didn't recall the item as odd. He'd always thought of the senator as a strapping cowboy from Wyoming, so he didn't think twice about what business the gun had in the senator's office. Hunt arrived at his door and bid the guard farewell. With that, he completed a few final tasks. He moved photographs of each of his children to the front of his desk and arranged four letters intended for his aide, Mike Manitos, to give to his family. His timing was meticulous. He arrived at the office shortly before Manitos, likely knowing he'd be found by the loyal aide, and quickly so the proper measures could be taken. Hunt felt his wife and children had gone through enough stress with Buddy's trial. He didn't want them to have to experience the heartbreaking moment of finding his body. As planned, Manitos arrived to find Hunt in his office chair just minutes after Hunt pulled the trigger. He was dead from a gunshot wound to the head. Soon after, Detective Frost was called in to help deal with the situation. And so began the process. The florist van was called in to move the body. The press was skirted. Arrangements were made to tell the senator's family. Hunt's wife, Nathel, remained largely silent in the days after Hunt's death, though she attributed her husband's suicide to health issues. She never specified which. A memorial service was arranged for the next week. Much of the Washington political sphere was invited. Many were grieving the senator. Journalist Drew Pearson especially. He had known Hunt was being blackmailed and that Bridges and his cronies were pulling dishonest, even illegal tricks. Had he written about it earlier, perhaps he could have helped spare the senator some anguish. Perhaps he could have even prevented him from taking his own life. However, in an effort to not further rattle the family after Buddy's trial, Pearson claimed that Senator Hunt had personally asked him to stay mum. After Hunt's suicide, though, Pearson couldn't stay quiet any longer. He knew a grave injustice had occurred at the hands of men still in Congress. Just a few days after Hunt's death, Pearson wrote with knives out, saying, Hunt had been living under the fear of political blackmail in connection with his son. 
Pearson gave every detail he had, explaining what many Washington insiders were afraid to share. How Senators Bridges and Welker tried to make Hunt resign. How they then resorted to strong-arming the D.C. police to reinstate prosecution against Buddy. He closed his column solemnly, stating that he feared that Hunt was not just a dedicated senator, but a sensitive father who didn't want his son dragged through the mud at the expense of his re-election. Senator Bridges was furious. Perhaps in all his pomp and circumstance, he believed a low-level journalist wouldn't go after him. But Pearson's column in the Washington merry-go-round, muckraking as news snobs called it, opened the gates for more criticism. The more reputable Washington Post soon chimed in, thanks to journalist Marquis Childs. He titled his report, Smears and Tears Plague the Senate. He too condemned the duo, stating, the McCarthy-Welker faction of the party had blood on its hands for its role in Hunt's suicide. With all this press pointing directly at them, it was increasingly necessary for Senators Bridges and Welker to attend Hunt's June 30th memorial. Avoiding the event would only feed speculation that they held some responsibility for the suicide. At the service, Lyndon B. Johnson took to the podium and expressed his sadness, saying, I can think of few events which cast a greater pall of gloom over the Senate than the untimely and tragic death of our beloved colleague, Lester Hunt. Though it's unclear who permitted the next two speakers to contribute eulogies, both Bridges and Welker were allotted time to speak after LBJ. Welker's closing words were as insensitive as expected, a last-ditch effort to extricate himself from blame. He praised Hunt briefly before adding, I venture to say, Hunt could have been the senior senator from Wyoming as long as he lived, or as long as he desired. Subtext? We weren't gunning for his seat. Despite their false show of mourning at Hunt's memorial, Bridges and Welker were both boiling with fury. They wanted to crucify Drew Pearson for alleging that they had been blackmailing Hunt. The vitriol even filtered up to Joe McCarthy himself. According to McDaniel, Senator McCarthy had a framed sledgehammer in his office labeled, For Drew Pearson Only. Indeed, Bridges was on a bloodthirsty quest for damage control. He wanted Pearson's column to be ripped from syndication, lest the journalist's claims continue to be spread into other newspapers across the nation. On June 21st, Bridges contacted Bell Syndicated and threatened them outright, saying, If your syndicate or any of your papers under contract with you carry the Drew Pearson story with respect to the undersigned and the late Lester Hunt, that you and each of you will be held strictly accountable. Bridges didn't stop there. He tried to shore up his reputation at home, too, with the help of the publisher of the Manchester Union Leader, New Hampshire's largest daily newspaper. The publisher, William Loeb, claimed that Drew Pearson's column was not only a hogwash, but that the dirty, unfounded accusation will soon be exposed for the baseless lie it is. It came as no surprise that the editorial from Senator Bridges' home state offered little factual evidence to back the argument that he was innocent. As McDaniel put it, the diatribe consisted wholly of Loeb's political prejudices. 
Surely a topic so contested warranted further investigation. Senator Lester Hunt had, by all accounts, killed himself under very concerning circumstances. No such inquiry came, though. Despite Lyndon Johnson's awareness of the situation, the Senate Ethics Committee never opened an investigation. This could have been to respect the wishes of Hunt's wife. Nathel was largely private and declined press requests following her husband's death. It was also probable that now the Republican-led Senate wasn't eager to dig further into what its leaders had or hadn't done. Because, as anticipated, Hunt's vacant seat was filled by a Republican, Edward D. Creepa. The Senate majority that Senators Bridges and Welker had long lusted over was finally theirs. For a few months. The general election of 1954 found Democrat Joseph O. Mahoney running for senator from Wyoming. Yes, the same man who delivered the news of the impending blackmail to Hunt. And much to the displeasure of Bridges and Welker, O'Mahony won. Though nothing could abate the tragedy of Senator Hunt's suicide, there was a certain air of schadenfreude in the fact that Stiles Bridges was the one to swear in Wyoming's newest Democratic senator. After all, that's the job of the president pro tempore. Great power, great responsibility. But the glory days were fading quickly. The aging Stiles Bridges would become an increasingly likely suspect of tax evasion in his final years. The stockpiles of cash left in various places for his wife to retrieve after he passed only seemed to confirm it. The Grey Eminence, as he was nicknamed, died of a heart attack in 1961. With Bridges finally out of the picture, no one could argue Lester Hunt had become suicidal at random. In an effort to further clarify the senator's motives and whether a medical condition had prompted him to take his own life, biographer Roger McDaniel made requests to access his medical records in accordance with the Freedom of Information Act. However, the inquiries to the Bethesda and National Archives went unanswered. So McDaniel asked Wyoming Senator John Barrasso to intervene, which unearthed a shocking revelation. According to McDaniel, the Federal Bureau of Investigation and Bethesda Naval Hospital destroyed records that would have shed light on the blackmail of Lester Hunt 30 years after his death. It's unclear if either agency had reason to participate in a cover-up. However, the destruction of records that would have helped settle this outstanding question is troubling indeed. It leaves Hunt's story without any clear resolution. But what the episode does make clear is that a politics of suspicion and hatred has very real human consequences. And certainly in this case, none of those consequences were good, not even for Bridges. Thanks for listening. For more information on Senator Lester Hunt and the Lavender Scare, amongst the many sources we used, we found Roger McDaniel's Dying for Joe McCarthy's Sins, The Suicide of Wyoming Senator Lester Hunt, extremely helpful to our research. We'll be back next week with Scandal Number 33, Bathhouse John Coughlin and Michael Hinkydink Kenna, 
You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Political Scandals on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Political Scandals in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Political Scandals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Travis Clark, and Paul Mahler. This episode of Political Scandals was written by Mackenzie Moore, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Richard Rossner and Kate Leonard. <laughs>